Okay, today on the show we have Steve Kirsch. Steve is the CEO of M10. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Lewis. It's a pleasure to be here. Steve, I absolutely want to get into your new company, M10, but you've got a fabulous background starting up companies, large and small. Um, I would love it if you would give our audience uh, the rundown, the skinny on, on who you are and, and what you've been up to these last 20 or 30 years in payments, in tech, um, because I think you've got a fabulous resume, Steve. So please, uh, please tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. I've been a serial entrepreneur. Uh, I'm based in Silicon Valley. I've been doing this for the past uh, 45 years or so. I've started, uh, I don't know, I think it's like seven or eight companies. Um, the first one was mouse systems to make an optical uh, version of the mouse. So the mouse that everybody uses today is all optical. So that was uh, my invention. And then I did um, uh, FrameMaker, uh, which was acquired by Adobe. Uh, it was Frame Technology. I did InfoSeek, uh, which was one of the original search engines, and uh, that was acquired by Disney. Um, and did um, a, a company that made anti-spam uh, filtering. So the anti-spam filtering at Yahoo, for example, is the uh, technology that uh, we invented. Then I've done other uh, startups uh, since then. I did a, a startup, uh, One ID, to uh, create uh, unbreakable digital identity, and unfortunately, uh, that um, did not go as planned. Uh, we thought everybody would uh, gravitate to that, but um, uh, it was just very hard to make a sale because nobody trusted us, even though we were the most trustable infrastructure. Uh, so mo most recently. Uh, started token to do open banking and uh, and more recently than that started m10 to do uh, digital money for um, uh, for banks so modernizing the underlying payment rails uh, for banks I think we could pick on any one of these experience and Stephen talk talk for half an hour about any of them why don't we uh, look at infoseek for a second you said that was an early search engine um, how did you conceive of a search engine in the early 90s? I mean, what, what sort of software would that even run on? And what was the, uh, you said it was bought by Disney? To, to run us through that experience. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, so uh, that was in the, the uh, late 90s. Um, and uh, the technology really was the same as uh, what we have today with Google. I mean, it, it's virtually a, a miniature version of, of Google. Uh, so that, and we wrote the original uh, search engine uh, in Python, uh, as it turns out, and the web crawler was written in, in Python. Uh, but it, it really operated uh, the, it, it, almost the same way that, uh, that Google does today. And uh, the, the big thing that Google had was that page rank algorithm that uh, gave you, what, what we did is we gave you the most relevant hits. So we used traditional um, relevance to, uh, determine which was the best match to what you typed in. And Google's innovation was, no, let's give them the most popular uh, result that uh, features that uh, keyword or keywords. And so the more popular thing is actually what people are more, most interested in. And so that ended up being, um, uh, of course, a big success for Google and, um, and not as big a su success for um, uh, InfoSeek. Excuse me, Steve, I was muted there for a second, but you still managed to exit to Disney? 
Um, yeah. So uh, Disney uh, uh, made a very attractive offer to to buy the uh, buy the company. That's fantastic. Jumping forward to one ID. I think online verification, uh, finding wise ways to identify people through various data points during, let's let's say, a payments transaction. This is big business now in terms of the amount of companies starting up in this space, offering AI-driven anti-fraud, all sorts of wonderful new cybersecurity tools that fit together with e-commerce, with traditional FS. It's a really you know, burgeoning area of payments, fintech, cyber. Do you think one ID um, was a little bit ahead of its time, or, or tell us why you couldn't kind of bring that company even even further along? Yeah, well, one ID was focused on the authentication uh, space, so authentication so that when you logged into a website, you wouldn't have to remember a username or, or password. And so it was meant for simplifying people's lives because I mean, like I was managing hundreds of passwords. My wife couldn't remember her Apple password, and every time. She forgot it. It forced her to change it, which made it even worse. I mean, you know, the, she got caught in what I call password hell. <laughs> and so um, we worked with security experts to design a trustable infrastructure uh, that used uh, actually three private keys uh, in order to secure your identity and to make sure the infrastructure was impervious to attack. And the problem was that you needed to be an expert in security in order to understand and appreciate how novel and effective and secure it was. And so people didn't believe it because they didn't understand it, because people didn't have the security background uh, to understand it. And so we had this fantastic technology that nobody trusted because they didn't uh, really fully understand it. So there you go. With the market being more sophisticated now, this was roughly five, six, seven years ago, I think, one ID. Um, do you think that the average buyer of that sort of authentication technology nowadays is more sophisticated in terms of the types of security analysts and technicians um, that they employ? Insignificantly, I would say. When you look at the security that we have today, uh, it's pretty abysmal. I mean, people talk about two-factor uh, security, uh, and it's pretty rare. It's, it's relatively rare that you can use a private key uh, in order to digitally sign and authenticate. Uh, that's becoming more commonplace now. It's becoming more commonplace because of the um, uh, devices that we have. Um, and, uh, you know, so our phones, for example, can digitally sign using a, uh, private key that is not disclosed and can't be tampered with. And so that's kind of the state of the art. So now we have, you know, login with, um, uh, with face ID, which, um, you know, is a huge step forward, uh, in terms of, of digital identity. So, you know, that seems to be working okay, but you know, th there were better ways of, of, of doing it so that you didn't have to have, um, uh, if you're not using that device, uh, then, you know, uh, you'd want a secure way to, uh, to handle those authentications. So 
essentially we put together a uh, federated digital identity system, which means you establish your uh, identity once, and then it works at all of the various sites that you go to. And if any device was compromised, then you could go and just replace that one device and authenticate the new device in one place, and then it would be usable everywhere. Well, we still don't have that today. So today you can have these, um, you know, an iPhone, for example, that, that logs you in using Face ID. But if you, you, if you lose that iPhone and uh, you have to replace it with another device, then you have to re-authenticate at every single site. And what we did is we made it so that you could just re-authenticate one in one place and it would then be accepted at all of the sites. And it was done in a very trustable way. So it's way better identity than we have today. And, um, you know, it still is. Uh, and, and, you know, conversely, I just had my, uh, my, uh, my phone number stolen from me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I got a message from AT&T saying, hey, we're about to transfer your number over to your new provider. And if you didn't do this, call us. As soon as I got that message, I called them and they said, nope, you're too late. And that was like five minutes after I got the message because I had to be on hold for five minutes at AT AT&T. And so my, my, my cell phone number was taken from me without my consent. And it turns out that in order to do that, all you had to do is give the phone company two numbers. And if you knew the two numbers to give to the phone company, you can, you can basically take over anyone's phone number by just knowing two numbers. So you talk about multi-factor authentication. Here, I can take your phone number, which is probably the most important thing from a security point of view. Um, that people use because people all the time are, you know, saying, okay, well, you know, we'll send a code to your, your cell phone. Well, that can be taken from you with one factor of security. And I complained to my, uh, my legislator and I said, you know, this is, this is crazy. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Congress has actually written to the FCC because it's the FCC that is demanding that phone companies must transfer the number if they're given only one factor of authentication. Just is this, knowledge. Is this still the case today? Is this yes. Still ha- yes, yes, yes. And, and basically they said, look, you know, we can't do anything um, without Republican help. And, uh, you know, the FCC is, is controlled by the Republicans. And um, so... We'll, you know, hopefully when with the new election, we'll be able to turn things around and, and correct this. But it's basically an FCC policy. Mm. So it's mandate, the regulator mandates that the phone company has to accept just one level of authentication, not two factors, not three factors, one factor authentication in order to steal someone's phone number. So the phone number I had for 10 years was taken from me without my consent using one factor authentication. Do you know why that's an FCC policy or what is yes. their interest in keeping Yes, it because they think that one factor is sufficient um, 
to uh, for security. And that's when Congress complained and they said, this is ridiculous. They said, well, we don't think it's a problem. We started PCN 12 years ago with a view to serving the fintech community from a growth perspective. Since 2008, PCN has helped household names in fintech as well as the largest global merchants grow with the best talent who have specific financial technology experience. If you are a VC with a portfolio of fintech businesses, a scale-up looking to hire the best talent, or a merchant looking to hire a head of payments or an entire payments team, get in touch today for a no-obligation consultation on how PCN can help you accomplish your hiring goals. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, it seems very out, outdated, foolhardy. Um, yeah, so that's what I meant by, you know, the security uh, um, uh, hasn't changed that much <laughs> in, 10, in 10, 20 years. There we go. A couple of stories from your background in search and authentication. That brings us up to Token, which is a big time fintech success story in, in both Europe and, and America now. Were you the founder of, of Token, Steve? I know you were at CEO, but do you, did you actually start the company? Yes. Yeah, I started it uh, because the banks had um, really, really bad APIs, and we thought we could design better APIs for banks. Um, but then getting banks to listen to us um, was problematic. Um, so we have all of these different standards that exist throughout the world for open banking. And of course, nobody's, you know, sort of no two banks are on the same platform. Okay, tell us about, I'd love to do a bit, a bit of a dive into Token. Could you walk us through a quick intro to the company? And we'll spend more time on your current company, M10, afterwards. But I know for a fact a lot of my listeners are, are really interested in this, in this company, Token. There's a lot of companies out there starting companies, copycat versions of it, quite frankly. Tell our listeners a, a bit more about what exactly it does, what problems it solves, who its customers are, wh why it was such a welcome addition to, uh, to the fintech marketplace. Um, so the idea was to provide, um, a token was to provide banks with a standardized API uh, so that uh, uh, software developers would have a single API that was well-designed by software developers. Uh, for the purposes of accessing your bank account and for moving funds. Um, we kind of have that, um, that ability uh, right now with the World Wide Web. It's a standardized interface, but of course the, uh, the individual commands that you would give a particular bank using uh, uh, web requests um, is completely different. And so the idea here is that if you have a machine-based API, you can have the same uh, APIs for all banks and it would make um, banking much, much easier uh, for, uh, uh, for everybody. Um, so we got a number of banks uh, to get on our platform, but not enough to make a difference. And so you have um, some banks uh, doing the uh, UK uh, APIs and. Uh, and there are a bunch of other APIs that exist. Um, so, you know, it's not quite fair to say no two banks are on the same API, but um, it's fragmented. Um, and so our, um, what we try to do is say, hey, look, you know, this is the best one and everybody should 
get on board and we, we made it really cheap for the banks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing in order to receive every episode as it's published. The fintech space is ever-changing, and we care about keeping you up to date with the latest happenings in this exciting space. If you wish to appear on the next episode of In Check with Fintech, please email podcast at teampcn.com. That's podcast at teampcn.com. And in that way, you were one of the first entrants to the market with, with token, offering this kind of universal API that all the banks could sign up to cheaply. We, how did you conceive of, of that space and actually design a company that, that filled that space? Because it's quite abstract, you know, and, but actually it's, it's a huge gaping hole in, in financial services generally. Yeah, um, well, it was not hard. Right, because all you had to do was ever interact with a bank's API to know that, wow, they're all different and they're all pretty bad. Um, so it was, an, it was a glaring need. And I had experience in, uh, uh, in Bitcoin um, from my previous company, from 1ID, because one of the people that we hired uh, was one of the, the guys who created um, one of the protocols uh, uh, for, for Bitcoin basically is Adam Beck and he created Hashcash, which is a protocol that's more or less used in, in, in Bitcoin for, uh, uh, for validation that you got the, the correct guess. And, um, and so it was kind of out of that work that we said, you know, oh, you know, Bitcoin just makes it so much easier to move funds. Why shouldn't we be able to use digitally signed open APIs um, to move money? And so today, we still do not have open APIs for banking. The closest thing we have to truly open APIs are basically uh, web uh, requests, but those are different APIs for each, uh, even though the, the web request um, overall uh, protocol, the HTTP is the same, HTTPS is the same uh, for all sites. What's in it? Uh, the actual content is different for for each bank. Um, so, uh, but that's the closest we have to truly open because you don't have to be qualified. You don't have to be a PISP or an AISP to make these calls, to make the web calls. So uh, with PSD2, mm. uh, you have to have uh, essentially be licensed uh, in order to access the bank's APIs. And so, you know, come on, this should be, you know, it should be open APIs and it should be open to everybody in the same way that Bitcoin uh, and other cryptocurrencies are fully open APIs and yet nobody is robbing people's Bitcoin accounts because of the open APIs. Um, so by actually uh, creating these levels of indirection, you're actually decreasing the security in the system. And that's because anytime you put a man in the middle, then you have the potential for, uh, for fraud. And this was, I guess, one of the reasons the, the big banks pushed back on PSD2 in, a, in the European context, the notion that if you have open banking, um, there's going to be more fraud, easier access to customer data, but it seems to be having the opposite effect 
thankfully, and companies like Token are, are demonstrating the commercial advantages of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's done right. It's truly game-changing. Yes, yes. I think this brings us nicely into the present. We've touched on, on Bitcoin and, and crypto. M10, Steve, please tell us about your, your latest venture. Well, M10 is all about the realization that it's not just the open APIs to banks that don't exist. It's also the underlying infrastructure. So the infrastructure of banking um, is basically correspondent banking and SWIFT. Uh, if you're talking about moving money between banks and especially cross-border payments. Um, but in general, the underlying plumbing, the thing that connects bank A to bank B, whether it's in-country or cross-border, uh, these things are fairly ancient. And they're very difficult to modernize because they, was, they were put in a, at a time when uh, people were you know, first building um, uh, banking rails. And so all of the rails that we've put in for both local rails and cross-border rails, of course, you know, if we made the analogy of railroad tracks, they would have different gauges, they would have different uh, distances between the tracks and so forth. And so they would be incompatible. And whenever you hit a junction, then you would have to say, oh my gosh, you got to take the locomotive off. I got to retool it, um, make it, make the wheels the correct size, make the distance between the real, the wheels, the, you know, the correct length for the next um, uh, jump on the, um, the next hop uh, from going from point A to point B. And, so you have all of these systems that were created at, at different time frames, um, mostly locally. And then they said, oh, my, my gosh, we're going to need to interconnect these systems. So you had, it's just a, uh, a real mess. And so it's really time for an ex the, you know, what I call an extreme makeover bank edition, where we rethink how this thing should be done, how it should be constructed. You know, if we were to design the banking system from scratch using a clean sheet of paper, how would we design it? And so that's essentially what M10 is, is to say, hey, let's, let's look at, the, um, uh, uh, at how it should be done uh, with an understanding of how banking works uh, first. So you can't just say, oh my gosh, we'll, we'll just uh, uh, throw a shared ledger at this and we'll solve all of the problems of banking be and we'll call it central bank digital currency and central banks will just... Each central bank will be um, uh, just moved to a crypto signed digital ledger and our problems will be solved. Um, well, that's not the case at all because we have every, pretty much every single central bank that's looking at central bank digital currency is looking at it themselves and they have their own um, investigation. They have their own partners. Um, and so there isn't this, hey, let's all agree on, on common standards. Now, there is an ITU effort uh, that has just started just, you know, uh, uh, weeks ago, you know, maybe about a month ago. What is ITU, uh, to, Steve? Sorry. Yeah, ITU, uh, International Tele Telecommunications um, Union, I think. Or, okay. Um, and, uh, you know, so they're... Uh, but that's going to take, that process will take probably two to four years. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, um, uh, we have basically old infrastructure 
and modern needs and uh, they don't match. And so it's an opportunity for companies like us to say, hey, here's a better rethinking of how banking should operate and how cross-border payments should work and how we can do smart contracts uh, between two parties. And this is way better. It's more efficient um, uh, than what we have today. I mean, it's just ridiculously different and better. And so, so now you have the uh, sort of the same thing I had at One ID, which is convincing mm. the powers that be exactly that this is better and and uh, people should adopt this. And so, so now it's just a sales job of convincing the right people. And the problem is that you can't go, um, you can't go to a bank, um, one bank at a time, and and do this because the you just can't get critical enough critical mass that way. So. You're basically uh, talking to companies like uh, Visa and MasterCard and saying, hey, this is a better way to do things. And then once you have, um, have a partnership with uh, either of those companies, then you have the potential then to uh, approach banks and mass, uh, or you could partner with Swift as well. I mean, that would be another uh, potential partner. Um, and so that, you know, that way we can, we can truly modernize uh, the banking system. And it would be as transformative as, you know, like the U.S. mail uh, uh, system. When you drop something in the mail, it goes from your post office to the next post office to the next post office to the next post office. Uh, whereas FedEx, it goes from, uh, uh, from the pick a point and then they fly it to, uh, 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 to one um, state I mean, there, there's one location where all the planes fly in and then they switch the packages and then everybody flies out it's a completely different model but it's a lot more efficient to move the packages that way than it is to do it um using uh, handoffs um, so correspondent banking with uh secure messaging uh as contrasted with oh let's have everybody use shared infrastructure so completely different way of looking at the problem um, and you get much better results, of course, in the more modern uh, way. I love the way you've conceptualized this landscape. It's, it's a massive endeavor. Um, I mean, my question would be a, a practical one. You've mentioned the sorts of partners you might approach to get this thing's, uh, thing moving, a Swift, MasterCard, a Visa. Um, can you go in at the very top levels? Can you approach legislators, other official regulatory bodies and, and convince them of the need for a sea change in, in infrastructure? Well, we, you know, we've talked to the uh, people at the IMF and they really love what we're doing. But the IMF has limited um, power to corral uh, central banks. Uh, so, you know, they, uh, they could write about what we're doing, um, but uh, they're not a, um, uh, by, by nature, they're, they're uh, uh, servants to the banks as opposed to telling the banks what to do. Um, so, you know, I think that the organization such as IMF could uh, uh, function as a, uh, a nice uh, middle ground. Uh, but, you know, so could the, uh, the ITU uh, if things work out. But, you know, that ITU process will take a long time. What does success 
look like for you, Steve? Are you not going to rest until you've, you've fully overhauled the infrastructure? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you know, it, it, it would be partnering with um, one of the big players, so the, a Swift or a MasterCard or, or a Visa, and then uh, implementing it such that, yes, you now have a truly open API where you can um, move money instantly 24 by 7 from your account, move money instantly from your account to another counterparty. And you could, and you're able to do things like if I wanted to uh, swap, say, a one, $1 in cash with, uh, say, one euro, which would probably be a bad deal. Um, but if, if we wanted to do that swap and I don't trust you, you don't trust me, right? And one of us has to go first, right? But in this new infrastructure, you can do that swap essentially instantaneously and simultaneously and you could do it at a set time in the future so if i agree to swap 10 euros for um 12 dollars uh in uh an hour and 35 minutes from now i should be able to enter into a smart contract uh with you and have that trade execute and uh and uh, rely, you know, rely on on that happening. And there are various uh, parameters you can do it. You can do it so it's guaranteed, but that would we have to reserve the funds right now. You can do it so it's not guaranteed, but there's a penalty, which means that, okay, great, I only have to fund this in an hour and, and a half from now, and the other party only has to fund it an hour and a half from now. But if the transaction doesn't go through, then we should lose our deposits. So you, you, the person who, who reneged on the transaction should eff- effectively lose their deposit. Yeah. Essentially, we went into an agreement. You know, it's almost like an agreement to buy a house that if, if, uh, if you back out, you're going to lose your deposit. So, um, but we don't have the infrastructure today to do something simple like that currency swap that I just described. And so being able to put in infrastructure that does this, that does it 24 by seven um, with all currencies uh, and provides you, uh, you know, lots of liquidity options uh, for doing this is transformative. You can do uh, uh, over the counter trades, you can do FX swaps, you can do um, and all sorts of liquidity management techniques, uh, then instantly 24 by seven. Uh, so this would simplify banking uh, quite dramatically. Big time, big time. So the job now is a sales job, I suppose. I think you mentioned now you need to get out there and, and, and convince the, the powers that be that they need to start listening to this. Are you building up a sales force? How are you going about scaling this thing? And kind of well, you know, there are, all, there are only a, a, a few uh, targets here that are interesting partners that can actually make this happen. So you don't need a huge sales force. You just need to, to contact the right people in the right organization at the right time. <laughs> so you have to have all of the sort of the ducks lined up. So, I mean, we, we, have, we have proof points in terms of our technology. We've demonstrated that we can do uh, secure uh, distributed ledger technology at a million transactions a second. Um, and uh, we have a way to scale that linearly to 10 million or 100 million transactions a second. So we have the, um, the technology um, uh, behind this uh, and the uh, components that we put together uh, 
to make this a reality. So, you know, now it's convincing people that, yes, this is the right vision for the future and uh, we have the best technology to be able to do that. And, you know, we've, people that know about what we're doing are very impressed. Indeed. I've scratched the surface here. It's a little bit mind blowing. Is there anybody else in direct competition with you? Is there a company similar to M10 or are you kind of leading, leading the field here? You know, we haven't really run into anyone that's doing um, anything comparable to what we're doing uh, that, uh, that we've seen. So, uh, yeah, I think we're, uh, we're pretty much alone here because it's, you know, this is one, it's one of these things where, wow, um, only one person, you know, only, you know, only one company is going to, or two companies are going to be able to pull this off. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, there's sort of a very limited, uh, uh, set of players that can exist. And then the, the people that have the, the right vision for how to actually make it work and pull it off um, is relatively small because they're the technologists who don't understand banking. And then they're the banking people who don't understand technology. So you need to be uh, a little bit of both. And I, I happened to, uh, to get lucky because I was on the, uh, the tech advisory board for HSBC and uh, so uh, learned a lot about how banks work and how banking works uh, from that. Um, and uh, as, as well as some people with, with, uh, uh, with heavy experience with payments at HSBC. So, uh, so I had some concepts for how you could do this, but it was the collaboration between myself and, and somebody essentially on the other side, because I'm heavy technology and very light into banking and, so I collaborated with something. It was someone who was very heavy into banking and um, lighter on the technology uh, piece of it. And, and together, uh, we put together a system that would make bankers very happy and that would ma maintain the two-tier uh, banking system, so M0 and M1 money. Um, and so it doesn't disrupt the Apple cart like central bank digital currency does. Uh, and, and so w we designed a system and then we had it validated, um, by various people, uh, and, uh, you know, so people at the IMF, uh, for example, people at Stanford and people who used to work for the federal reserve. And we took it to, uh, various, uh, people uh, who work for central banks. We took it to the FCA in London and, um, and got feedback on it and, um, uh, ran it by the bank of england and and as well and and, and other places and um basically uh people really uh, liked what we were doing i like it as well steve how can we help what kinds of people are you looking to reach out to you what sort of resources partnerships personnel who, who should be getting in touch and, and how can they get in touch well um you know right now it's um we're kind of finishing the uh, uh the basic uh technology and so we're we're kind of hunkered down there uh but we're we've now started to uh open the door to talk to companies like swift or uh visa and mastercard and so forth so we're we're starting uh, those conversations now fantastic um, what, what websites should people be finding out more on 
Well, the website for uh, for M10 is, uh, uh, of course, m10.io. Got it. Steve Kirsch, thank you so much for uh, telling us about your, uh, your wonderful life in, in technology entrepreneurship. I think M10 sounds like potentially a, a multi-multi-million idea, much like your last one, Token. So we will watch it uh, as it grows. Maybe you can come on in a year or so and tell us how you're getting on. Yeah, it would be uh, it'd be interesting uh, uh, contrast. So, yeah, thanks very much, Lewis, for uh, having me on your show. Thanks, Steve. All the best. Thanks for listening. And we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from our partner, Free a Girl, who are dedicated to founding child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Eveline, CEO and founder of Free a Girl. Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away, together with their youth, family, and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom, and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freeagirl.com for more information. Thank you.